It is so good to have you with us today at River Oaks. Thank you for being here. We're continuing this morning in our study of the parables of Jesus. The parables were those stories that Jesus used to illustrate, to teach truths about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We've seen, as we have studied his parables, the importance of knowing the, the context, the setting in which Jesus told a parable, and knowing something about the audience uh, can let us know something about the purpose for which he told the parable. Today's parable actually provides us with the purpose for the parable in the introduction in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. The purpose for this parable is very clear. Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, of, of Luke tells us that he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now that's very important to grasp because this, that's the reason for the whole parable. It tells us what the parable's about. This short parable also gives us, I believe, one of the most important teachings in all of Scripture about one of the most important topics in Scripture, and that is justification. That's something we're going to talk about a little bit more this morning, but let's first look at the parable. There are two key characters in the parable. The first one is the Pharisee. Now, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, we've talked about the Pharisees before. They were sometimes the object of Jesus' parables. They're usually the, the, the bad guy in the parable. The Pharisees were very religious people. They were a group or a sect within Judaism who held to Old Testament law very strictly, but they had added to the law numerous traditions of their own that they said would help them keep the law. And uh, they were often at odds with Jesus. He often reproved them for their hypocrisy. And so the Pharisee is the, uh, right at the heart of this parable Jesus is telling today. The word Pharisee means separated one, and the Pharisees considered themselves righteous by their separation, their difference from other people. And so it's no uh, strange thing that in this parable, the Pharisee uh, stands by himself. He's standing apart from the tax collector whom he considers to be a great sinner. The Pharisee, standing by himself, Jesus said, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. That doesn't sound much like a prayer to me, does it to you? It sounds more like he's just pronouncing his own righteousness. He's just telling God how good he is. Then he goes on to be a little more specific and to remind God, he says, I fast twice a week. Now, fasting is not bad. Fasting is good. Jesus taught that his followers would fast, but that they should fast with right motives, right motivations. Fasting is a denial of, of food to seek God more fully, and fasting is not bad, but he's doing it to kind of prop up his own right standing before God, and that is bad. He says, I give tithes of all that I get. Tithing is not bad. Tithing is is good. The word tithe means a tenth. It's a way of worshiping God with the first fruits of our increase. And, and the Pharisees, I give tithes. He says, I give tithes of everything I get. 
not just my salary, but my, my Christmas gifts, my birthday gifts. I give tithes of everything. He's rehearsing his own righteousness. Furthermore, he looked down on others and was blind to his own need for God's mercy. Again, the introduction of the parable reads, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And the Pharisee, standing apart from the tax collector who's also in the temple, he's looking with contempt on this tax collector and saying, God, I sure thank you that I am not like him. This filthy tax collector treated others with contempt. As I thought about the parable this week, I found myself wondering if we don't sometimes do the very same thing. In fact, I don't wonder about it. I know I've done the same thing. Looked at someone else with contempt, maybe someone else who... Uh, whose lifestyle or views or policies we don't like and we harbor a bad attitude toward them because we know we'd never do what they do. We consider ourselves somewhat better than they are. And we evaluate ourselves by comparison with them. Comparing ourselves with other people can very easily lead to the very great sin of self-righteousness. That was the sin of the Pharisee. The Apostle Paul said this about comparing ourselves with others in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He said, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with others who are commending themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves, measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. It is always a mistake to measure our own righteousness before God on the basis of comparison with another person, no matter how good, no matter how bad. Nowhere does the Bible teach that you and I will be evaluated by God on the basis of comparison with other people, the way we stack up against others. Rather, the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our righteousness is evaluated by comparison with the perfection, the glory of God. And on that basis, we all fall far short. The Pharisee, however, is trying to prop up his own righteousness, even telling God about it, despising looking down on the tax collector. Now, what about the tax collector? In Jesus' time, tax collectors, and if you'll notice this as you read through the Gospels, tax collectors are often grouped with sinners, with prostitutes. Why, why would they be so despised? Well, often tax collectors were Jews who worked for the Roman government to collect taxes from their fellow Jews. Often they skimmed off the top for themselves and became wealthy by uh, cheating, taking extra tax for themselves. The very next chapter of the Gospel of Luke introduces us to a tax collector. His name was Zacchaeus, and the Bible says he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And when he was confronted with the reality of who Jesus was, he repents. He says, Lord, um, if I've defrauded anybody, I give back fourfold. Obviously, he had defrauded some people. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. 
And so the Pharisees and others Jew, other Jews tended to despise the tax collectors. But the tax collector coming into the temple, he recognized his need. Notice that he stands far off. He feels a bit unworthy. He won't even lift his eyes up to heaven because of this sense of unworthiness. And he beats his breast. He recognized his need and then he sought God's mercy. What does he say? God be merciful to me, a sinner. This, I believe, is a prayer that God will always, always answer. You see also, King David prayed that prayer in Psalm 51 when he prayed, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And then we're told that the tax collector, not the Pharisee, went away justified. This word justified is, I believe, the most important word in the parable. In fact, I'd say it is probably one of the most important words in Scripture, but it is a word that I think is often misunderstood. And I want to talk about it a little bit this morning. Most people, I think, when they think of religion, Think in terms of externals, outward forms of worship. What rules do you live by? I mentioned a few weeks ago that um, in our Sunday morning service, my wife and I had the previous weekend been at our son's wedding in Raleigh. Our son Matthew got, uh, got married there a few weeks ago. It was a great weekend for us all. We love being part of it. And uh, those of you who... Uh, have either helped pay for a wedding, you've had kids get married, or you've been married yourself recently. You know, there's just all kinds of ways to spend money at a wedding, right? Well, my wife told me the day before the wedding, she said, I'm going with the bridesmaids. Um, we're going to get our nails done together. And by the way, it's going to be 100 bucks. And I said, 100 bucks to get your nails done? She said, yes, yeah, this special gel treatment and everything. And you know, I, I resisted the chance to say something sarcastic like, well, I guess when the bride comes down the aisle, everybody's going to be looking at everybody else's fingernails or something like that. I didn't say it. And to my wife's great credit, she told me afterwards, she said, well, I tried to share the gospel with the lady at the nail salon who, who did this special $100 gel treatment on my nails. And I said, well, tell me about that. She said, well, um, as I tried to talk to the woman about the gospel, she told me that she had been three different religions. Now, I think Beth said the woman was from Thailand, so she, she kind of thought one of them might have been Buddhism. She, she said, well, what three religions have you been? She said, um, Catholic, Baptist, and Christian. And Christian, I said, well, I, I don't think Catholics or Baptists would like the distinction from Christian very, very well. A lot of Baptist friends I'd like to tell about this testimony. So this woman obviously had an idea of, of religion quite different from uh, the way we think about it. Now, most people think of religion in terms of externals outward forms. When people find out I'm a pastor, they, they first question is this, what church? 
And I said, well, River Oaks Community Church. And then almost always the first question, question is, what kind of church is that? How can we categorize you? Is it Baptist? Is it Catholic? Is it Anglican? Is it Presbyterian? Is it Pentecostal? Is it Methodist? And they're thinking of these outward forms of worship. And I'll tell you what I, I, I think I'm tempted to say in the future. I think I'm going to say we're a church that believes in God's work of justification. What are your thoughts about that? What do you think about justification? It is one of the most important concepts in the Bible. It's the way we are saved. And yet I think most people don't fully grasp what it is. I'd like to talk about it just for a moment because this is the key idea in the parable. The Pharisee thinks he's going to be justified, going to be made righteous by his separation from evil people, by his religious acts, his religious deeds. The tax collector just comes and says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, he went away justified, not the Pharisee. We really need to understand what this word justified means. So here is a definition of justification. I think we can define it this way. Justification is an act of God. It is an act of God in which he considers our sins forgiven. And he declares us righteous because Christ's righteousness has been credited to us. Now let's think about this just for a moment. First of all, it is an act of God. We cannot justify ourselves. It is impossible. We have to be justified. The word justified is a form of the word righteous, but, but if you remember your English classes in the passive voice, the subject receives the action. That's the, the, that's the way it is with justification. We have to be justified. It is an act of God. Only God can justify. Only God can declare one righteous or just. So first, it is an act of God. Secondly, it's an act in which he considers our sins forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross in our place. Now, that's critically important. And when we ask a person what salvation is about, typically they'll say, well, it's Jesus died on the cross to forgive me of my sins. And that is absolutely right. But do you know that's only half of what justification is? Not only are sins forgiven, there's something else that happens when we're justified. Because Jesus came to earth and lived a perfectly righteous life, he fulfilled perfectly the Old Testament law. He knew no sin. He was without sin. He lived the only perfectly righteous human life that's ever been lived. And in justification, not only are sins removed, but Christ's righteousness is credited to us. That is an incredible thing. And it is because of that that the Holy Spirit of God can live within us. Doesn't mean that we never sin again. But it means that we have been credited with the very righteousness of God in Christ. Now, this is so important 
so very important that I want to take a moment to point, if we could back up to Romans 3, starting in verse 19, to look at a passage of Scripture. I believe it's one of the most important passages in the Scripture uh, period for understanding righteousness, salvation, justification. So important, I would urge you to consider memorizing Romans 3, 19 to 26. If you want a great passage for walking someone through what really happens in justification, this, I think, is probably the best place to do it. The Apostle Paul wrote these words. Look at them very carefully. He writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, when he says law, he's talking about what we think of as the Old Testament law. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now let's look at this passage for a moment. What does it tell us about the purpose of the Old Testament law? Number one, we, 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 we see that through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's why it's so important to teach your kids the Ten Commandments. The law of God prepares us for the gospel of God. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Secondly, we see that no human being is going to be justified by keeping the law. That's what it says right here, right? By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. What else does the law do? Through the law, there is witness being born to the coming manifestation of God's righteousness. The law and the prophets bear witness to something yet future, something to come. They point to the gospel of Jesus. So the Old Testament law has some wonderful purposes for us. Shows us our need, shows us our sin, points to the coming gospel. So the law of God prepares us for the gospel of God. And we move on to the next verses. What do they bear witness to? What does the law bear witness to? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice the number of times faith will be mentioned here. For all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And propitiation has to do with the removal of the wrath of God toward our sin. To be received how? By faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a lot in those verses. And I think we can spend a lifetime contemplating them, meditating upon them, understanding more fully what they mean. That's why I urge you to, to memorize this passage. It is so incredibly important. But the thing I want to stress here is found in this last sentence. Through what God has done for us in Jesus, he is both just 
and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. God maintains his justice and, let, and yet forgives us sinners for all of our sin. He maintains his justice by allowing the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, to take our place. So that even Satan himself cannot point his evil finger at God and say, you are unjust. No, a just payment has been made for our sins. Because of that, God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, like that tax collector who sought God's mercy, we can be declared just made righteous, justified. It's a legal declaration by God of the benefits of Jesus' sacrifice being applied to us. Does that mean we never sin again? No. I sure hope not because I know I continue to stumble and sin. But our position before God is one of an adopted child because of what Jesus did. Therefore, the Apostle Paul says later, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus removes the barrier between us and God. He calls us into his own family. He gives us his own Holy Spirit to live within us because of this incredible work of justification. One final thought on the parable now before we leave it. The very last verses of the parable give a key principle when they say, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus is talking about the tax collector now. He was justified because he humbled himself in the right way before God. The Pharisee exalted himself and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the poor tax collector comes in and won't even lift his eyes to heaven and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We've seen this principle of the kingdom of God before in the parables. We saw it in the parable of the places at the table, the wedding feast, where the guests came and chose the places of honor. And Jesus said, don't, don't be like that around other people. Don't seek out honor for yourselves. Take the lowest place, and then you will be called up and be honored. So in Luke 14, Jesus is talking about humbling ourselves before others, putting others before ourselves. But now in Luke 18, he's talking about humbling ourselves before God. Extremely important to know and to understand. That's what the tax collector did. He humbled himself before God. As we come to a close here, I think about the sin of the Pharisee, how he, he kind of thought about his own righteousness and how much better he was than others, and it caused him to treat others with contempt. I just want us to consider a moment. Those of us who know we are Christians, we know we've been forgiven. We know by the grace of God we've been credited with God's righteousness. Is it still possible to live self-righteously, to act self-righteously. And I believe it is. And I say I believe it is because I find myself doing it. I find myself sometimes 
thinking with contempt, looking down upon, despising the actions or the lifestyles or the policies of somebody else. And so I want to raise the question, how can we live above that? Because I think that's what Jesus calls us to do. I think he calls us to live above a self-righteous type of life where we don't act like the Pharisee. How can I avoid being self-righteous? I want to suggest uh, three very simple things and I'll close with these thoughts. Know God, know ourselves, and know the gospel. Our tendency to live self-righteously is really diminished when we get a greater vision of who God is and what he is like. When we get a clearer view of the incredible holiness and beauty and majesty of God. And it is only really in light of the greatness of God, the, the holiness of God, that we can really know ourselves. The verses you see on the screen have to do with two people in the Old Testament who were considered by the standard of people in their time very holy. Righteous. The first is Job. And at the introduction of the book of Job, Job is called by God upright and blameless. And yet toward the end of the book, hear what Job says. Toward the end of the book of Job. He says of God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I get a glimpse of the glory of God. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ash. He gets a greater glimpse of who God is and he gets a greater awareness of his own sin before God. The other verse is from Isaiah the prophet. We could certainly say in his day he was the most holy of people. He was the one God chose to give all the prophecies rebuking the sins of the people. He was a holy man and he gave us one of the greatest books of the Bible. And yet in Isaiah 6 he gets a, a vision of God. Just a glimpse of the glory of God. And what does he say then? They say, wow, what a, what a cool vision I get. Here's what he says. Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The greater vision of God, the greater awareness of our need for the mercy of God. But it doesn't stop there. We would be helpless and hopeless if we stopped there. These things lead us to a greater appreciation for the gospel. By the gospel, I mean what Jesus did for us. When he, the Son of God, left heaven, the perfection of heaven, and humbled himself to become a, a mere human baby, and lived among us, and suffered among us, and was tempted among us, and then gave his life for us humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, and hung there, bearing the judgment for our sins, bearing the wrath of God for our sins as, as if he were guilty of them. 
and then was raised from the dead. And through our faith in him, we receive the benefits of what he did. The forgiveness of sins being accredited with his righteousness. That's an incredible thing. And the more fully we comprehend that, the less we will be inclined to puff ourselves up with a self-righteous attitude and look down on somebody else who hasn't had the benefit of the gospel of Jesus yet. Know God, know ourselves, and know the gospel. May we be people who do that and live such a life of love and such a life of gratitude for God that the people in our world around us see the difference, sense the difference, sense the love we have. And may we help them find their justification in the only one who can justify, our Savior, our Lord. Let's pray about that together this morning. Father, we humble ourselves before you today. We acknowledge that you, Lord, and only you can justify and that we need your justifying work. Father, we pray for a greater outpouring of your Holy Spirit here upon us, that you would break down self-righteousness and you would work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit to appreciate the gospel. Pour out your Spirit upon us, Lord. Pour out your spirit upon us, we pray. Father, I pray for any here this morning who has not yet embraced the saving, justifying work of Jesus. I pray today would be the day you move on them to turn to you and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. My sins are great, but your mercy is so much greater. Do this, Father, we ask for them in the name of Jesus. Amen.